We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday, December 16th, 2021, as we bring you a new podcast episode. We are 15 days into the Major League Baseball lockout, and boy... Do I miss the offseason? Are we any closer to the lockout ending? Well, a new report from The Athletic suggests we are not. We'll discuss the latest lockout news and how early voting is going for the Baseball Hall of Fame later in the show. But first, we remember Roland Hemon, who died on Monday, December 13th at the age of 92. Hemund was the Chicago White Sox general manager from 1970 to 1985 before he moved into an advisory role with the White Sox to make way for Hawk Harrelson's disaster one-year tenure at GM. Hemund would later join the Baltimore Orioles as their next general manager from the 1988 to 1995 season before serving as the senior executive vice president for the Arizona Diamondbacks when they were introduced to the league in 1996. He returned to the White Sox as an executive advisor, winning a World Series ring with the team in 2005 as he served that role from 2001 to 2007. After Hemon's passing, there was widespread praise from many in baseball on how much he meant to them, well known for going out of his way and helping many fresh faces get their start in baseball. Joining me to remember Hemond is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and Jim... Hello. In a short period, fans have lost two key members of the 1983 White Sox team. Lamar Hoyt passed away in late November, and now Hemund. You wrote a great recap of his impact on the White Sox, and maybe none bigger than helping keep the franchise relevant on the South Side, especially in 1972. Yeah, when you were going through his history, his track record, basically he seemed time and time again to be entrusted with teams at their most fragile state. Uh, He got his big break when it came to leading a department as the scouting director for the Los Angeles Angels in their expansion year. You you mentioned that he took over the Diamondbacks when they were uh, in their first years. 
when he joined the Orioles after the White Sox, they were trying to find themselves after Earl Weaver, and he kind of guided them back to prominence during the uh, Camden Yards renaissance and, and their strong run of teams in the 90s. Yeah, that's basically just seemed like whenever a team needed somebody with, you know, who wasn't intimidated by a big job and, and vision and like a, a keen scouting eye and, 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 a, and a good eye for talent of all kinds, like even building a front office, it seems like teams found him and he responded well. And, and probably his biggest job, his most important job, or jobs, I should say, were with the White Sox, both 1970 when he drew fewer than 500,000 fans. And there was talk about them being relocated to Milwaukee. They actually played some games at County Stadium, a test of that market and trying to figure out if they would be the team that moved there. It ended up being the Seattle Pilots who moved to Milwaukee. That was a very fragile state for the White Sox because John Allen's ownership was thoroughly undercapitalized and they could have been moved. And it was it was Heeman who took over, and he had the, the the foresight to make a very daring trade to get Dick Allen uh, for Tommy John. Like Allen was, you know, one of baseball's best hitters. Also, had the reputation for being very controversial, very mercurial. I think we know now, you know, decades later, how he earned that reputation by having clashes with the press that did not understand him or did not respect him. It did not try to understand him. And uh, he just said, like, well, you know, Tommy John's a good pitcher and all, but we've been built around pitching and defense, you know, for the entire existence of the White Sox franchise. We need a difference maker. We need excitement. So he got Dick Allen. He, uh, you know, Bill Melton came along. They had guys who could actually lead the league in homers for once in their lives. And, you know, they, they, none of those teams won the division, but they were finally exciting. They were able to draw over a million fans and, and basically rescue that ownership until Bill Vec came along. And then uh, that was another task to try to, with Vec's blessing, as free agency starting and as this Wild West opens of unprecedented player movement to just dive in and take advantage of that and try to figure out who they can get for, you know, that that isn't too expensive or who can they acquire that might be expensive shortly, but they might get one good year out of them. And that's how they got the 77 hitmen, you know, not a good defensive team, but just loaded up on hitters, you know, Richie Ziskin and uh, Oscar Gamble, the chief rentals of the team, but they just went all in to try to figure out how to generate excitement. And that's one of the most beloved teams in White Sox history because of their impact and just, keeping the White Sox fixed in Chicago until, you know, ultimately Bill Vex sold off to Jerry Reinsdorf's group. And then they finally had a, a ownership that, that where money wasn't the problem. You know, eventually the stadium was the problem and, and there was a, another movement scare there, but it was never for a lack of funds the way it was with the Allen ownerships and the Vec ownership. So he had some very tough tasks when he took over and when adjusted for the degree of difficulty, like he may have never won a World Series directly as general manager, but some of the jobs he had and just the stakes of the jobs that he had and, and having to do them well enough to keep a franchise in the city, I think, is really it's really hard to appreciate now in an era where teams really don't move. Like back in the 60s and 70s when expansion and, and, and you know, you had the A's going back and forth between cities and you had just, you know, Seattle flopping and then going to Milwaukee. You just had a whole bunch of possibilities for franchises to move. That was an, uh, that was a threat. And, and because of Roland Heeman, the White Sox survived that threat and they're still in Chicago today. In football, 
Many talk about the coaching tree of former assistants of a particular head coach like Andy Reid of the Kansas City mm-hmm. Chiefs. He's had so many of his assistants become head coaches for other teams. Heyman helped so many in baseball. I don't know, Jim, if one could create a visual of it, but for older White Sox fans, especially for that 1983 team, Heyman was responsible for bringing in Tony La Russa into the fold and even had Dave Dombrowski on his staff. And both of those guys have won a few World Series reigns. Yeah, and Jim Leland, too. I forget about Jim Leland. Yeah. And then when he was in Baltimore, <laughs> Doug Melvin was his farm director. And for those that live in the Milwaukee area, you remember, you might remember that name as he was the general manager for the Milwaukee Brewers for many years, helping turn around that fr- franchise, especially with the draft picks of Ryan Braun and Prince Fielder. Yeah, and Walt Jockety, too, and Kenny Williams when he... Uh, took over for Ron Schuler uh, after the 2000 season. One of the first moves he made was bringing in Heeman as an advisor. Another testament to Heeman's ability just to be the guy you want when things are getting started. Yeah, a nice bounce board for ideas for Kenny Williams, who was never afraid to wheel and deal, especially early on in his tenure as general manager. Granted, it's not a very long list. Compared to other franchises, the White Sox don't have a long list of general managers. But if you were to create an executive ranking list of past White Sox GMs, considering as far as the situation, especially in the early 70s, and just how special and you know how beloved, as you mentioned, the 1977 and 1983 White Sox teams were, is Heeman close to the top or at the very top on that ranking list? Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, there's an urge to put Kenny Williams there because he actually won the World Series and he has a great case for it. But, um, you know, as I mentioned, the degree of difficulty thing <laughs> and just the uh, surviving and, and thriving for three owners because uh, he went from Allen to Vec to Reinsdorf and, and being retained throughout. Even when Jerry Reinsdorf fired him after the or you know, promoted him slash moved him out for you know hawk harrelson and that and there's a case of you know hiring somebody who is the exact opposite of the guy who came before you know heman was somebody who uh cherished relationships and was uh a, a builder and and somebody who just never forgot a name and was just just widely respected around the game and and patient and and just had a love for the game and people and, and Hawk Harrelson came around kind of a combustible personality and uh, not afraid to get into fights and cause controversy. And uh, I, I think we saw the, you know, with Heeman's track record versus Harrelson's the GM, just the, the big picture winning out and just the, you know, Heeman's ability to play the long game ultimately, I think uh, defines his track record as 70 year career uh, in baseball front offices. So yeah, he's uh, he's up there. I think you know you can look at other guys like Frank Lane and Ed Short and even um, Harry Grabner from you know the nineteen tens. But Heeman, I think, just when it comes to not having the money and having a very delicate state of the White Sox uh, front office, it's it's uh, yeah he he's definitely either if not one then definitely two. But I think there's a strong case to make him number one. And the, the thing that kind of fascinates me is um, just how 
you know, he, he was a favorite of writers, uh, even like for Saber, you know, the Society for American Baseball Research. Like he was a friend of Saber, you know, very, very much a resource for connecting and providing, um, you know, first hand accounts or here's who you need to talk to get the story. Just a wonderful sounding board and, and uh, kind of a switchboard too for just connecting people to people when they needed to talk. And just how widely available it was all the White Sox fans who said they had wonderful conversations with him throughout the years. And, and, you know, I wonder, you know, if the era of the approachable GM is over, you know, or just, I was thinking about that, just Hmm. how much of an everyman he was and how, you know, humble and, 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 you know, he didn't put on errors. He, he wasn't somebody who, who made like, you know, uh, six, seven figures, you know, maybe made six at some points uh, later on in his career, but you know, he wasn't like a seven figure guy. He wasn't a celebrity. And, and so like, he was just, he, he talked to anybody and he was happy to uh, connect anybody. And I just wonder, it's hard to picture like a Rick Hahn or Theo Epstein or just the uh, Brian Cashman, just these guys who will just talk to anybody, talk to fans, just, you know, you know no errors about it. no, you know, no VIP treatment. Yeah, just because the job has changed so much, I think there is a lot of room for Heeman in his position to try and fail. I think part of it is, you know, with with you know Rick Hahn when he makes a bad trade, because of just the uh, social media, just the the internet living forever, <laughs> everything, uh, you know, just nothing dying. Like he hears about it, he'll hear about it forever. But uh, you know, in a case where the media was three, four newspapers and maybe some radio, maybe some TV, but mostly just newspaper and fans. It was probably a lot easier to not feel like you were going to be pilloried, you know, perhaps. Uh, maybe you just weren't high profile for better or for worse. People didn't know you when you did well. People didn't know you when you did poorly. You were just somebody who was not too far removed from, you know, traveling on the country and scouting for, you know, thousands, you know, mere thousands of dollars. You know, so maybe that's a case where, you know, just had he he was uh, he, he broke in with the Boston Braves, so that's how far he dates back and wow. how uh, you know just a scout for the Boston Braves in the 1950s. They're not making much, so perhaps his origins were such that he always maintained his ability to connect, uh, no matter whether it was you know high profile baseball executives or you know college kids at the winter meetings or you know um, um, seasonal employees at the ballpark. It just seemed like he had everybody's name. Yeah, the, the topic that you bring up, can can anyone just walk up to a general manager if you're at the coffee shop? Can you hold down a conversation and have small talk with with someone like Rick Hahn or any GM of any of the, the four major sports teams today? I, I don't know, Jim. I, that That's a great question. I, I may lean to know, even though there are times that Rick Hahn comes off very personable, during his press conferences, the vast majority of GMs today are careful on what they say. So if you catch them in like that type of situation where it's unscripted, I don't know on how engaging they're going to be. I don't know. I, I've never ran into a general manager in the public before. Yeah. So the next time I do, I'll try. I'll try to small talk with them and I'll report back. 
I've talked to, you know, Rick Hahn at SoxFest. I talked to him at the um, Saber Seminar in Boston. And that's a case he was very chatty and, and talking to anybody who wanted to talk to him. But that's a case also where he's prepared to talk. You know, he's on a panel. He's, right. you know, he, or in SoxFest, he's on multiple panels. He's there to connect with season ticket holders. So that's his job. But yeah, when you're hearing about it constantly and your kids are hearing about it constantly, I wonder if you're just, there's more of a defense there. Whereas, you know, when Roland Heeman was working for Bill Veck after Veck took over, retook over the White Sox, um, in the seventies where they go to the winter meetings and set up a folding table in the middle of a room saying open for business. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's a case where, you know, that, that might come off as incredibly amateurish. Now, if Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams did that in the middle of, uh, you know, the, the Gaylord Opry, Opryland or, you know, San Diego convention center, it's just, uh, propping down a, a card table and saying, let's talk like, you know, nobody would take them seriously now. So I think everything's more polished and refined and, and there's a lot more just, people who can spread word so yeah perhaps it's a case where just you know I'm, I'm sure he'd be perfectly nice but when it comes to just uh the willingness to connect the way Heeman did and just having he seemed like his guard was down and maybe it was easier back then to just have your guard down because you just you didn't you weren't a celebrity the way gms are now that's a really good point that's a really good point on that topic of going to a table and say that you're open for business didn't they make like six trades during those winter meetings, something like that, yeah. I'll often, you know, depending on how long this lockout goes, that's probably something to write about. Just uh, the various, you know, Roland Heeman trades and just figuring, you know, going through the archives and uh, seeing. But I remember going to the Hall of Fame library and seeing um, just basically like a a classified ad for the White Sox, just saying that they're uh, they're wheeling and dealing now. So give them a call. Well, depending on how the lockout talks go, and we'll be talking about that next on the Sox Machine podcast here, uh, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams may need to get a virtual table and uh, let everyone know that they're open for business because I'm not quite sure on how much time they're going to have before the start of spring training, as we'll talk about that and how the early Hall of Fame voting trends uh, are coming along as we are getting public ballots next on the Sox Machine Podcast after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. While Roland Hemond had has his legacy forever secure in baseball, there are some seeking immortality in the sport, earning the honor of becoming a Hall of Famer. Writers part of the Baseball Writers Association of America, who have at least 10 years of service, get to vote, and early ballots are being tabulated in large thanks to Ryan Thibodeau and his staff. As we record this episode, 26 ballots have been made public and entered into Ryan Thibodeau's database that he makes public that you can see on Twitter uh, or online. And as you, the listener, get a chance to listen to this episode, I'm sure more ballots will become public. The estimated number of ballots for this voting year is 392, which a player needs 75% of the vote to make the Hall of Fame. So it's a race to 294 votes for these players. It's only 6.6% of the reported ballots in, so we have a long way to go. But early trends suggest that we might not see anyone get above 75%. Out of the 26 ballots reported publicly, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens show up at 80%, and newcomer David Ortiz is currently at 76%. Again, we have a long way to go, but Mark Burley is only on one ballot so far, and he needs 5% to stay alive on the ballot for next year. Jim, this is a loaded Hall of Fame ballot. When looking at the ballot, there are 16 players who had a career war of 55 or more, five players who had a career 70-plus war, and three 100-plus war players. So why am I worried that the writers are going to make the same mistake we've seen through the years and nobody gets elected? Oh, just because of precedent of their very public ongoing struggle with players who either took steroids and were busted or were, you know, widely connected to them or traceable to them or were suggested to have taken them or had suspicious careers. Just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, still a mess. I mean, this will be the last year that Roger Clemens and, uh, Barry Bonds are on the ballot to deal with it. You also have some miserable people like Kurt Schilling and Omar Vizquel, like just, uh, they seem to be, you know, gaining, uh, entry or, or headway towards entry to Cooperstown before, um, they, they both took turns for the worst to where they just became too toxic to, uh, maintain their support. So yeah, just, it's right now, probably maybe the least fun hall of fame voting has ever been. And out of the 26 ballots, 11 of the 26 have had the full 10 player ballot. Uh, we've had two ballots with eight players, four with seven, uh, then you get, you know, multiples for six, five, and four players. Uh, and then there is the there is the ballots that have no players on them. So far, we've only had one ballot that showed up blank. And I know we have talked about Hall of Fame voting over the years. How do you feel about a voter who turns in a blank ballot? I don't care for it. I get it. It's... I think the older I get, <laughs> you know, just I think at one point everybody is a, a kind of a small hall Hall of Fame person. You know, the, at least a lot of serious baseball fans when they're learning the game, they're learning like the inner circle players versus the 
you know, more outsider players versus the players who were, you know, either weird voting cases or were ushered in through weird veteran committee hijinks of the 1960s and 70s. You get a sense like, oh, these are the real Hall of Famers. These are ones who shouldn't be there. We need more real Hall of Famers. And I think at the, at least in my case, and I've seen other people reflect this, the older you get, the more ball players you see come across your radar. You understand better the people who say like, I think Roger Mayer should be in the Hall of Fame because he's famous. Or yeah, I think that um, you know Dick Allen should be in the Hall of Fame because I've never seen anybody hit the ball like him. You know, there are cases where you might say like, you know, Roger Mayer had one good season. Outside that one good season, he's not quite there. But you know, Dick Allen, I think everybody's coming around to him. But just having these conversations and just realizing like, what's the harm of having too many Hall of Famers? Like, maybe the institution is cheapened a little bit, but who suffers? Like, I don't even, you know, I don't think the Hall of Fame suffers that much. I don't think the museum suffers. I mean, Cooperstown does great when more people come up to, uh, you know, visit over the course of the summer and see the plaques and go to the induction ceremony. So nobody is really harmed. You know, I think it's a, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to try to rank the best players and try to maintain a small hall. But, you know, the, the more I see, and in the case of like Mark Burley, who, might not be a Hall of Famer, but it'd be really cool if he were in. <laughs> like, I think that's the way I'd put it is, I get why he's not there, or get why he's not getting support, but you could, you could tell a really cool story with him involved. And, and and if he got in, like maybe, you know, I would say like a non-Sox fan me 10 years ago go like, oh, that's that's BS the way that Jack Morris got in because he pitched a couple of good games in, in, in the World Series. And, uh, you know, was a good quote to the media. Like, you know, you roll your eyes and say, Jack Morris is not a hall of famer, but now that Jack Morris is in, like, it doesn't matter. Like it's, you know, so a lot of people were happy that he was in a lot of tigers fans and twins fans were happy. We were in, and like, fine, you know, that's, that's good. So like, when you think, you know, I think you, know, when you, when you're looking at a hall of fame ballot and you can't say that Roger Clemens is in the hall of famer because of steroids and Barry Bonds isn't and Sammy Sosa isn't Gary Sheffield isn't and you can't vote for David Ortiz because he might have been and Sammy Sosa because he might have been and then you get down to like okay Kurt Schilling you can't because he's a jerk and you know and, and you can't uh, you know and then you get to Scott Rowland and it's just like well he wasn't the perfect third baseman because he wasn't healthy otherwise he was uh, you know a top seven third baseman in in baseball but he wasn't perfect so he's not and like you just after a while, you just yeah, it seems like kind of a miserable outlook for a Hall of Fame voter to look at a ballot and see nobody. So that's, I think, where I think it's too disconnected from who the museum ultimately serves, which is baseball fans. If you can't look at a ballot and say, like, nobody belongs here. Like, when it comes to the steroid guys, like, you, you and I were baseball fans coming up during the steroid era. My favorite player growing up is Jose Canseco. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just... He was like an action figure on a baseball field. He did incredible things. Like he, he drew me to the game. I probably would not like baseball as much as I do if Jose Canseco weren't there at that time because he was the one who kind of drew me into it. Yeah, he was fun to imitate in the backyard. He was, you know, flashy and did, you, you, you just like the way that nobody on the White Sox was like Jose Canseco, and that's why I, I was gravitated towards him first, and then, you know, gravitated towards the White Sox later. And so when, when I see the steroid, and even like Canseco, like the, when, you know, going to Comiskey Park, old Comiskey Park and hearing steroid chants. And then, you know, 15 years later when he's on the ballot and Mark McGuire is, you know, uh, going through, you know, the ballot for the first time and, uh, you know, he's having to testify in, in, in front of Congress and people are saying like, well, he's ruined the game. Just 
No, he didn't, because people in Comiskey Park were chanting steroids at these guys in 1989 and 1990 that, that seven and eight-year-old me remembers, and, and people turned the other way. And, and whole generations of baseball fans were became baseball fans because of these players. So to kind of shut them out of the Hall of Fame, especially guys who weren't, you know, you can't directly connect to steroids. You can only you know, do circumstantial evidence. Like that's, I think, when you rule those guys out and say like, nah, he hit 600 homers, but yeah, I think he used. Whereas like somebody like Jim Tomey, who was in the same timetable, but because he's a nice guy, <laughs> he gets in. Just like that's that's where I think it just gets a little bit like, I would say if if you can't look at a ballot and turn one in, you know, with a name crossed on it, just like just just abstain for a year, mm-hmm. sit it out, and, and and then return when there's somebody you like versus turning in a blank ballot. Well, this particular voter, I think, recently only voted for Derek Jeter, and the previous year didn't vote for anyone else either. So it's it's this one particular writer that continues to do this and. When I look at the ballots that are coming in that are public, again, a vast majority are not going to be public. But so I'm very thankful for the work that Ryan Thibodeau is doing because it does for those that do cast their ballot and they tweet about it or they put it in an article or other forms of social media. When they do make it public, that information is collected and we can track it along the way. And I'm with you, Jim. When I look at this ballot, I see, honestly, I see 16 Hall of Famers. So my opinion is if you have a 10-person ballot, I'm good. Whoever you pick out of those 16, if you pick 10 of them, any combination, I'm good with that. And it makes sense to me, cool. We're not going to have an argument. If you only pick five guys... I'm going to ask you to go back to your ballot and do a little bit more homework. And maybe it's that conversation of, well, I don't want to vote for anyone that used PEDs or used steroids or possibly lied Mm -hmm. to the media when I'm glad you mentioned it. Nobody complained about 1998. There are certain writers that certainly made themselves a career following and writing about Sammy Sosa and his run for the home run record in 1998 and drew more eyeballs to their work that puts them in a position today to cast judgment on these players, whether or not they're Hall of Fame worthy. I I, I just, that's the the one thing that I'm looking at these public ballots right now is this trend. We, We need to see more 10 person ballots. Because if the trend goes reverse and we see many ballots that are less than half filled in, five or fewer players are, are checked off. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really concerned, especially like for Mark Burley, but I'm concerned about Bonds and Clemens and Schilling and Sosa and the conversations that we had recently about Dick Allen. And everyone's like, Dick Allen is a Hall of Fame worthy player he should be in what are we doing well in a decade or 15 years from now we're going to have these same exact conversations again with bonds clemens Schilling, and sosa asking mm-hmm. ourselves what in the world was everyone thinking a decade ago and now you got the newcomers coming in which uh, i'm surprised so many of them 
uh, of these ballots early on. The trends are, well, I can't vote for Bonds and Clemens, but I could vote for David Ortiz. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. So that, that must be the line. Okay. Well, I think like Ortiz and Sosa were both named in the same reports. Yes. And so I think Sosa is the guy I, I correlate to Ortiz, just support for one and not the other. Um, cause you know, Bonds and, and Clemens, they have kind of a more thorough history and more documented history oh, absolutely. Uh, than Ortiz does. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the thing, yeah, you know, I guess I have in mind is that, you know, when it comes to say like miserable human beings, like, you know, I would say Kurt Schilling is one, um, you know, Omar Vizquel has been accused of some pretty ghastly things, active lawsuits, <laughs> two different yes. incidents, uh, incidents over the, yeah. Uh, so like. The one thing I will say is like the baseball hall of fame is like, it's an honor. It's not a right. Like if you hit 600 homers, like you don't necessarily guaranteed entry. Like you, you know, you should have some baseline for humanity, uh, to get in or like if people want to withhold their vote because they might be like in Vizquel's case, like an, a monster, uh, then, uh, you know, I don't mind that. Like in, in, in especially Schilling is going so far out of his way to turn off voters. He could have been in years ago if he just, yep. you know, what, was a decent person <laughs> like even, or even stayed quiet yeah, or even just, you know, and it's not his politics because like, you know, Mariano Rivera shares his politics, at least when it comes to voting and, and Rivera was unanimous. Uh, you know, and Rivera is very like a public, um, you know, conservative and very public, uh, supporter of Trump. And just like, that, that's fine. He votes for who he votes for it. It's not, but he's not like a toxic person the way that Schilling is and goes out of his way to alienate and, 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 and foment uh, hate against uh, certain people. But just like, if he just kept, you know, kept it more to himself, like he'd be in already. So if you want to be like a jerk and turn off voters and they don't get in, like, I don't necessarily care about that, but I, I think I get more caught up in like, say, you know, like a Scott Rowland case or something like that, or, okay, you don't, you, you don't give any quarter to uh, steroid users. You don't give any quarter to people who are tied to steroids or, you know, kind of there, they have a timeline that uh, where you can, draw circumstantial evidence to it. Okay. Then like say Scott Rowland, who is a top seven third baseman and who had a very, and this is all speculative, but because everything else is speculative, he like, he had a natural career. He got older. He had to deal with injuries, got banged up, had trouble staying in the field, but ultimately was productive enough to be, you know, one of the best to ever play his position. And he can't get headway. Just like, well, what are you rewarding them? Like only the people who are mm -hmm. age in such a way where they are, incredible in their twenties and you know, then they have to get older, but not suspiciously. So like, like they have to age in a certain way that fits a you know timeline that basically avoids even just the most uh, reflexive of suspicion. Like that's where I just kind of, you know, throw up my hands and say like, I don't, I don't get it. A case like Todd Helton, which is another, you know, he's a case where just like, they're still trying to figure out what course field has to do. But like, he was, you know, he's a big figure for one of, you know, he, he and Larry Walker are the two central figures in the history of one of, uh, you know, major leagues baseball teams. Like it's just, uh, the way Mr. You know, Minnie Minosa got in his Mr. White Sox, like Todd Helton, like if he's the you know most central figure in Rockies history, like why isn't he in, you know, like why isn't he getting more support? So, you know, it, it, that's, that's where mm -hmm. I think I just get all kind of confused and tied up is just like, if you, if the bar is so high for players to get in, but also like you can't even, you might have to have used steroids in order to clear it. It, it doesn't serve anybody. And I think that's where I get irritated <laughs> is uh, not allowing the best, but also not allowing the, the people who might've been the best when you factor in all the people who might've been using, like, it's just, no matter how you, 
how you uh, like fold it and approach it. Like there should be Hall of Famers there somewhere. I agree. Uh, Scott Rowland's a great case. 17 year career, 70 war for his career. Think about that. That's around four war for 17 years. You know, we, we get, we, we get excited, Jim. What a White Sox player reaches four war in a season because they have had a really good season. And Scott Rowland churned out that type of performance for more than a decade. Like that, that's, that's how I feel about the hall of fame is that when you look at the career war of these guys and you look at their peaks and you can take a look at their valleys as well, but it's just amazing to me on how some of these names who were big players and big stars mm-hmm. are still on the outside looking in. And I, I don't know what needs to change. You know, there are some that say, well, the way that we vote as writers needs to change. Maybe it goes to yes, no. Uh, and then it's the percentage of how many yeses did you get uh, that advances you into the Hall of Fame. I also think the associate the association needs to get a lot younger. It really needs to get a lot younger. There are some baseball writers that are very jaded against the players on this ballot and they're they're making their voices heard now in their disapproval. They didn't disapprove it that much back then when they were covering it, but now they're making their their disapproval known and our generation when we're in our 40s and 50s Jim has to fix everything in the golden era committee uh for these guys 10 to 15 years down the road, but yeah, Scott Rowland and you mentioned Todd Helton, Gary Sheffield, I think is a Hall of Famer. He's got more than 500 home runs in his career. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I uh, the homer pick, Mark Burley, as you mentioned, that would be a fantastic story for him to be in the Hall of Fame, the perfect game, the no-hitter, being drunk and closing out a World Series game. Uh, we, we talked about, as far as a previous podcast, you know, if Jim Cott made it to the Hall of Fame eventually, maybe that helps Mark Burley's case later down the road because, you know, one's going to be the next pitcher that has 14 consecutive 200 inning seasons. Um, it would have to start next season because uh, we don't really have a an active list today to, to match what Burley did. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Burley, how do you feel about his chances of staying on the ballot for next year? Because again, it is a 5% threshold. Yeah, it's trickier. I mean, like Joe Cowley, he fell off Cowley's ballot and which is irritating because Vizquel is still on it. <laughs> Are you serious? I did not yeah. see that. Really? Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at the tracker now. Yeah. He says he would have voted for Burley, but he did vote for 10 players. Okay. So he maxed it out, but Burley is the first one off, but just like, you know. How do you have Vizquel? Okay, whatever. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's just that's a case where just um you know, he needs every vote I think to stay on. I I think I like his chances still, but he might be coming close. Uh going from like 11 to 6% or something like that. I'm guessing his case will be, if he gets in, it'll be through a committee. Part of me like just likes having guys on the ballot for 10 years because they get their stories told for 10 years. They get kicked around. They get a nice post from Jay Jaffe at Fangraphs talking about their careers. And Joe Pisnansky talks about them. It's nice. Like, it's just a nice way to remember. It's like a temporary Hall of Fame. And that's what I kind of like about the ballot itself. And that's why I don't mind, you know, the, the guys kind of kick around for 10 years, even if they never quite gain momentum. I, I see a purpose there, even if... It doesn't materialize in anything. I think the only thing I get irritated about with Hall of Fame support is closers, like Billy Wagner getting fifty percent. I don't care for it. He's not. Uh, he's not one of the sixteen that I mentioned that I think is Hall of Fame worthy. Yeah, 
I think like the Craig Kimbrell, the experience in the White Sox where he just kept hearing future Hall of Famer over and over again. And one, he didn't pitch like it, but even if he could, like he couldn't have made a difference in the uh, ALDS. Like he couldn't, like just, and when a closer is like, yeah, no, just how many people could have been great closers if they weren't starters, if they weren't very good starters coming up short of the Hall of Fame? Yeah, again, Mario, Mariano Rivera, as you mentioned, he, he's the unicorn. I, I, I think there's little doubt that he is the greatest closer of all time. Should he have been the first unanimous voted in player? Probably not, because, like, come on, there are far greater players that were voted to the Hall of Fame before Mariano Rivera that did not get uni- unanimous selection. Ken Griffey Jr. didn't get unanimous selection. What the hell is that about? Even Derek Jeter, going to going the Yankees route, didn't even get unanimous selection. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, Billy Wagner's throwing 903 innings. I guess like in his career, like Edwin Jackson threw a thousand more. Like who had the more impressive career? Right. Like whose job was harder? I think Edwin Jackson's job was harder. Yeah. Even though Billy Wagner might've been better his job. And like, you know, if you put Edwin Jackson ninth inning, maybe he wouldn't have been as dominant, but just like, it's so, the bar is so low to be great. You just have to be, uh, the, the hard part is just staying healthy for long enough to accumulate like that 400 save role. But otherwise, like just, they're so replaceable or so, they can, they can be uh, ruled out of a game or, or kind of just circumstances can conspire against them to not factor into the biggest games possible. And I just don't get the point of, the, of, of honoring the position that heavily. Maybe we just don't like relievers, Jim. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> but like, I mean, like John Smoltz, like when he did his, you know, uh, going to closing after starting and then just like he kind of just showed like how good, you know, very good starters could be in that uh, save situation. Like, I don't know if he gets to the hall of fame, if he doesn't have that three year run of like being an elite closer and then going back to the rotation, being a very good starter again. Like that was the one where I saw like, this was a guy who might not have been a hall of famer. You know, might've been like a hall of very good. He kept going long enough to actually make the hall of fame. But, but uh, it's a case where, yeah, he just dropped into the ninth inning for a few years, racked up, you know, average like nearly 50 saves a season and had like an ERA around two and got some Cy Young votes, and everybody's very impressed. I'm like, how many starters could do that if you just dropped them into the ninth inning for uh, you know, every three games? I don't know. That's a good question. That is a good question. The, these are the 16 players, by the way, listeners, that I think are Hall of Fame worthy. Barry Bonds, Roger Clements, Alex Rodriguez, Kurt Schilling, Scott Rowland, Manny Ramirez, Andrew Jones, Todd Helton, Gary Sheffield, Andy Pettit, Bobby Abreu, Mark Burley, Sammy Sosa, Tim Hudson, Jeff Kent, and David Ortiz. If you pick 10 out of those 16 players that I just read off, you're not going to get much of an argument from me. I will be happy that you voted for the maximum amount of players because I think we need to have a big Hall of Fame to shed some players off to give others their day in the sun their opportunity maybe at a future year where they have the best war out of all the players on the ballot because it's only going to get more loaded coming up. I mean, each row is looming for the ballot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, one of our Patreon supporters, longtime Patreon supporters, Pete Hand, Mr. Aloha Hand uh, on Twitter, uh, when he goes to Cooperstown and he talks to people there, they are already preparing for each row to be inducted because they believe it's going to be 
the most attended Hall of Fame event ever hmm. is when Ichiro makes it because of all the fans in Seattle and all of his fans in Japan will be coming to Cooperstown. Uh, so it'll be a packed place when Ichiro gets in there. But it, you don't want people to fall off. And then in 10 or 15 years, we got to talk about their Hall of Fame candidacy again. Just do the job now. Get these 10 of these 16 Hall of Famers, whatever combination, three to five players that get past the 75%. Get them in, have your big halls, shed some names off of the ballot, and, and just make it a lot easier so guys don't get Kenny Loftoned, uh, mm-hmm. to unfortunately use him as an example. Or Jim Edmonds. Or yeah, Jim Edmonds that may have borderline cases that need further conversation but you don't get them because they didn't hit 5% in the first year and they're off the ballot. And we got to talk about them later on in a future committee. And it's just not fair to them and it's not fair to the fans. And who's to blame? It's the writers. In this case, it's you guys, the writers. If you're listening to this and you're part of the association, this is your problem. Figure it out. Just hear from fans. You need to do a better job with this. No, it's partially the writers, partially the Hall of Fame, because the uh, BBWAA wanted to re- remove the 10-player maximum, and the Hall of Fame wouldn't allow it. Well, that's lame. Okay, yeah, then never mind. Yep. I'm sorry. <laughs> writers, you share 50% of the blame. Hall of Fame, you get the other 50%. There you go. We'll see it. We'll see how the rest of the Hall of Fame voting goes. Again, it is early and uh, we'll see what the trends are as uh, we'll, we'll see if Bonds and Clemens get more support. We'll see how much support David Ortiz gets as this is his first year in the ballot. And fingers crossed, Mark Burley survives the 5% cutoff. The last thing we're going to talk about on this podcast episode, we've been teasing it, is the latest lockout news. Evan Drellich of The Athletic reported that Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Players Association will meet today, December 16th, to discuss non-economic issues of the CBA. There are things that don't involve money in the CBA that the two parties are going to discuss whether they want to continue them in the next CBA or if there's any adjustments that they have to make. It appears that the economic issues, the core dividing topic between the two parties, they will not have those conversations again until January. On his podcast, Drellich shared his belief that if a new CBA is done, it'll be around when spring training is supposed to start on February 14th. Again, if a new CBA is done. And it sounds like from Drellich, there's some skepticism around baseball that a CBA can be agreed upon before February 14th. And February 26th is when teams start playing spring training games. And if they don't start playing those games, then the teams are going to have to start paying the cities that host these spring training games money um, because of the contracts, contractually obligated to play those games and then the owners will start to feel the financial pain of not playing spring training games jim we are 15 days into the lockout christmas is coming and there's also new year's eve and those lucky enough take that week off from work it appears major league baseball and the players association are doing the same there is a lot to iron out in a new cba but the league is in a lockout because of the economic issues 
when you hear that the two parties are pushing that conversation to January, do you think the start of spring training is now at risk? It's possible, but I think it's probably, it probably benefits both sides a little bit to say that spring training could be at risk just to maintain that unified fronts and just be in it for the long haul, or at least pretend that they're in it for the long haul. So to me, it seems like they would be saying this no matter what. And that's maybe a case where I'm tricking myself into being optimistic uh, just because uh, I'd like a deal to get done sooner. But uh, on the other hand, it's, you know, I've been anticipating a longer fight just because of the core economic issues at hand, just based on how much the players have to try to gain back from having the CBA used against them for a couple of terms now that there, there are some deep seated issues that need to be resolved. So I could see it lasting to February. I think I said January 15th is the over underline for me or kind of when I thought it might be most realistic. And I'm holding to that, or at least yeah, if I had to put money, anything, I guess I'd still put money there, but it could go longer and it kind of makes sense to just because I think given how frenzied the free agent market was before the lockout, I don't think players are necessarily intimidated by a short off season after a lockout because it might benefit them just as much, uh, you know, driving those deals and, and that interest and in trying to get things done. So that's a case where, you know, perhaps uh, they like the idea of a two week off-season resumption to uh, all of a sudden get it, the money starts flying again. It's not great for GMs. <laughs> yeah. Some GMs that didn't do a whole lot uh, pre-lockout. We're trying to trade Keg Crimble. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Oakland, they got to figure out what they want to do. Cincinnati needs to figure out what they want to do. There's a lot of teams that need to figure out what they want to do post lockout. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I'm hearing this news and, and let's say a new CBA is not done by February 14th and now it's eating into spring training and maybe you lose some spring training games. You, you may have this position as a GM where you have your guys working out finally because the CBA is done. Everybody reports to Glendale, Arizona for the White Sox as spring training gets started. At the same time, you have this pool of very attractive free agent players that would really help teams. And you still have these trades that maybe you had conversations pre-lockout, or let's be honest, conversations you're still having during the lockout. And you're still trying to iron out those trades to get those players to come to your spring training facility and players are without homes and that's going to add stress into their home life because their significant others and their families are asking where the heck are we living because opening day is fast approaching we got to figure that out mm-hmm. it, it could cause some stress it could cause some stress if a if a, if a new cba is not done by valentine's day and if it gets done in march I wonder if we have a delay into the regular season or if all parties agree, yeah, three weeks of spring training is good enough. <laughs> we can we can start the season right away. Yeah, then again, you know, I, I think I'm kind of keeping in mind right now with uh, the Bulls having most of their team <laughs> on the COVID list and just the uh, NHL games being canceled and all the NFL players going on the uh, uh, COVID list. Just like, who knows what the variant will look like? <laughs> Who knows if, yeah, that's true. Yeah, just like here's a case where like baseball 
benefits greatly, I think, from its seasonality and from uh, you know having uh, nice warm weather games uh, uh, out in the open and uh, just yeah, that's two years in a row now where they've been able to have their season basically, you know, more or less fine. You know, they had the 60 games, but it, it operated pretty smoothly, all things considered. Then last season was you know, basically ideal when it comes to everything that could have happened uh, not happening. So uh, you never know. But right now, I think just with the way other teams are losing players in games that uh, I'm keeping in mind, just like maybe spring training won't be normal again, or maybe it might be another two-part spring training to where they have to, uh, you know, break it up to where they don't want, you know, 80 players in camp the way they used to. You never know. So, but I, I'm just keeping in the back of my mind that spring training might not be ready to be normal yet. Either way. Who knows? Maybe we'll see Tim Anderson as the starting point guard of the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting dire. <laughs> very. It's getting very dire. For the Chicago Bulls. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if there are any updates to the Lockout Talks, we'll be covering it on SoxMachine.com, which you can visit daily for our writings and our columns. Uh, I'll be working on something regarding as far as the Major League Baseball draft because everybody is bored and now they are releasing their top 100 or top 100 plus draft lists for the 2022 Major League Baseball draft. And I have some ideas that I hope the Players Association and the league are discussing in the CBA as far as some updates for the Major League Baseball draft. So that's something you can look forward to on SoxMachine.com. But if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast or if you've been a longtime listener, maybe a longtime lurker, and you don't support us right now on Patreon.com slash SoxMachine, this is a great time to do so as our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And they also get the first opportunity to get our Socks Machine swag. And on that topic, we have new Socks Machine swag. What do we have for our listeners and readers, Jim? We have winter caps, black uh, knit caps, fold-up cuff with the Socks Machine banner, Uh you know, basic black, I would call it, with the uh, white and red uh, pinwheel cog on the front. Uh, very snug, uh, very warm. Tried it out. Unfortunately, I got them. Uh, we had the tornadoes in the area, so it's not quite winter here. But when it will be, I will be wearing it. And you should, too. Yes, and you can also buy them on SocksMachine.com at the store, correct? Yes, uh, they're $20 that include shipping. Excellent. So... If you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash machine where we have monthly plans starting at $2 a month. We also do have annual plans as well that save you 9% off from the monthly cost. And with the new year coming up, no better time to sign up for an annual subscription for the 2022 calendar year and 2022 Major League Baseball season uh, than right now. So again, go to patreon.com slash machine and sign up today. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts like Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I am Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.